Well, happy, th- whoa, hey, happy Thursday, everybody. How are you doing? You feeling good? You awake, alive, alert, enthusiastic? Great. Um, hey, uh, I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker tonight uh, to wrap up our TikTok Theology series. Um, you get to hear from a good friend of mine uh, named Mike Bro. Um, Mike's been here around CSF for a long time. He's, he's spoken at retreats, at synergies, and if you were actually at fall, how many of you guys were at fall retreat a couple weeks ago? Let's go. Uh, hey, what'd you think of Jody speaking that weekend? Wasn't she awesome? So Mike tonight is Jody's dad, so great preaching runs in the family, guys. Uh, but uh, Mike, bro, he was actually the senior pastor over at Southland before John Weiss uh, years ago, um, and now he travels around all over different, he told me right before, he speaks at like six different churches all year long, uh, just filling in for pastors. And I love his heart because his heart is just to serve the local church and serve pastors and jump in. And he's a phenomenal communicator. You guys are going to absolutely love him. So would you please give a nice, warm CSF welcome to our friend. Mike, bro. All right, what's up, everybody? Great to see you. Is this microphone? Did I turn it on? Good. All right, good, man. Great to see you guys. Uh, I got to come, I don't know, it was last semester or last year. I can't remember when it was, but it's, it's, it's like the highlight of my life when I get to come and hang out with you guys on, on a Thursday night. And yes, I am Jody's dad, better known these days. And I'm so proud of her and so glad that she got to hang with you guys. Uh, at, at the retreat, and she also got to bring my granddaughter to hang out with y'all because uh, she's thinking about coming here. I kept telling you, you got to come to UK because CSF is like the place, and so she came and hung out on the retreat too, so thanks for being kind to her, and I know she, she had a great, great time, and uh, man, I love, I, like I said, I've been coming to CSF for a long, long time, and whenever I get a chance to do it, I, I just, I'm, I'm thrilled that I get to do it. We'll wrap up a little series that we've been talking about these uh, phrases that float around on social media that kind of start infiltrating our thinking and it kind of becomes like normal thinking. And it doesn't matter if it's like your grandmother's Facebook or your mom's Instagram or uh, you know, Twitter or Snapchat or Be Real or, or TikTok. The trendy and popular advice out there is you do you. You heard that? Maybe even said it, right? Hey, you, you do you. And in regard to being true, to how God wired you up, I absolutely agree. When we are humbly confident in who we are in God's eyes, and then we combine that with the unique gifts and talents that God has given us, we tend to flourish in life. I mean, even recognizing things like your personality profile or your Enneagram number uh, can help you be comfortable in your own skin and help you from comparing yourself with other people. So in that context, the phrase, you do you, I think is appropriately encouraging. However, it seems that it's become, come to mean like so much more in, in, in our culture. I think in our current culture, it's come to mean whatever you feel is right is right. Alone, determine what's right, what's wrong. You, you determine what's good and evil. You decide what's best for you. You are your own source of truth. Fred talked about that just a couple of weeks ago. What's true for me might not be true for you. Truth is relative, so you do you. Self is the new God, which is really like nothing new. I mean, that's been going on since the Garden of Eden. And personally, I spent a long time keeping that trend going by trying to become Mike Almighty. Uh, But this whole you-do-you mantra 
It seems to be the new spiritual authority. Uh, Robert Roberts writes this, we have been led to feel that self is sacrosanct. Just as in an earlier time, it was thought never fitting to deny God, so now it seems never right to deny one's self. The attractive appeal is to be true to yourself or just, just follow your heart. Because after all, the heart wants what the heart wants. And man, doesn't, doesn't advice sound good? Come on, man, just, just follow your heart. Did you know that Scripture tells us that the human heart is the most deceitful above all things. So just follow your heart. I just got to be super transparent to y'all. It has been my experience that following my heart, when I have been led by my emotions, my feelings, my wants, my desires, my lust, my appetites, it has caused me and those around me more damage than anything else in my life. You know, I've been living in Southern California for the past seven years. Just moved back to Kentucky and grew up here in Kentucky. And uh, man, I, I, I love, love being here. And, and out in California, most people know that I'm from Kentucky. So they're always sending me stupid stuff to make fun of my heritage. Did you guys know that people make fun of Kentucky and other parts of the country? Uh, they're always sending me stupid stuff. There's, somebody sent me this the other day. Things you'll never hear a Southern man say. Like, duck Southern guys say that. Honey, you cooked them green beans too long. You'll never hear a southern man say that. And you'll never hear a southern man say, I'll take Shakespeare for a thousand, please. Uh, I don't know a lot about Shakespeare, but anybody remember the line from, from uh, Hamlet that I think has really kind of stuck with our culture? The line is this, this above all, to thine own self be true. Anybody remember that line in, in Shakespearean play? Anybody know who said that line? I didn't either. I had to look it up. I probably missed it on the SAT uh, way back. But it was Polonius who is the fool in that play. So it's the fool who encourages us with the slogan, be true to yourself. Just follow your heart. And I can't tell you how many times in my life just following my heart, just chasing after my appetites has made a fool out of me. Now, let me, let me just be clear about appetites. Appetites were created by God. They're just distorted by sin. Appetites were created by God, but they're distorted by sin. I mean, we're all wired up with all kinds of appetites, right? I mean, think about it. There, there's an appetite for food, right? Uh, there's an appetite for sex. There's an appetite for, uh, I know there's got to be more than those two. Uh, <laughs> no, but God has designed us in such a way that we, we have an appetite to be loved, right? We, we have an appetite to be accepted. We have an appetite to be treasured. We have an appetite to be respected. We have an appetite for responsibility. We have an appetite to compete. We have an appetite to win. All of those are healthy appetites. We were all made in the image of God. And like I said, he wired us up with these healthy desires. The desire to be loved is a good thing. The desire to achieve is a good thing. Sexual desire is actually a good thing. To create is a good thing. To win is a good thing. To more, more, more responsibility is a good thing. God created our appetites, but sin distorted them. When we walk with God, all of those things, all those desires can be expressed in a life in our own hands, and we just do us, and we live like there is no God, that self is God. I'm just telling you from experience, and I've been around for a while. Those desires become almost insatiable and extremely self-centered. 
Have you noticed this about appetites? Appetites only know one word. And that word is what? More, right? Our appetites really only have one word in the vocabulary. And that word is more. I mean, think about this. If we find love, we want what? More. If we get a little respect, we want more. If we win, we want to win again. No matter how much you achieve, no matter how much you accumulate, how much praise you receive, you always want a little more. I thought about this the other night while eating at a brand new restaurant. I just polished off like this enormous burger. And then I ate half a Debbie's meal, my wife. Uh, and, I said, and I said to her, I said, that was, that was so stinking good. I am, I am so stuffed. I may never eat again. And then the server came by with that dessert tray. I said, can I interest anybody in the dessert? And I thought, well, I might have room for a little more, right? We always think there's room for a little more. And we live as if there is something out there that will finally make us go, ah, now that's it. That's enough. But it doesn't exist. And have you, have you experienced also that appetites always scream right now? Like never, they never say later. Your appetites and mind scream, come on, follow your heart right now. You gotta move on this right now. You gotta grab this now, feel this now, taste this now, drink this now, watch this now. You gotta experience this right now. And our response to that, our ability or inability to manage those appetites in the moment, to say to yourself, you know what? I'm not gonna let my appetites and feelings run my life, is the ballgame. Your reaction to that voice will determine the direction of your life. So many families disintegrate because somebody couldn't control their appetite for more. They just followed their heart. Let their feelings lead their life. When appetites lead the way and yourself is in the driver's seat and instant gratification is acting like as your life coach, you don't stand a chance. Now there's a point in illustration of all this in the scripture we read tonight, it's in Genesis chapter 25. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to it. It's the first book of the Bible. We're going to put it on the screens as well. It's a story about two brothers. Uh, the older brother was a guy named Esau. You ever heard of this guy? Now, Esau was his dad's favorite. Esau was like a man's man, big, rugged dude, the kind of guy that's shaving in the fourth grade. You know that guy? You know the guy I'm talking about? Dressed in all camo. He loved to hunt and fish, had an outdoor face, had like biceps the size of my thighs. He drove a huge jacked-up truck with a rifle rack in the back. You get the idea. That, that, was, that was Esau. The younger brother is a guy named Jacob. And Jacob was smart. He was intellectually savvy. He's articulate. He's cunning. He was his mom's favorite, had an indoor face, spent most of his time in the kitchen trying out recipes from Pinterest. That's Jacob. They were like polar opposite as brothers. Now, the story revolves around this thing called a birthright. Now, that's a concept we're not really familiar with in our culture, but it was a very big deal way back in ancient Middle Eastern culture. The oldest son in the family was given by his father this thing called the birthright, which was not based on performance or anything else other than being the firstborn in the family. Anybody firstborn in the family here? Oldest, oldest child? Yep, a lot of you. Now, this was good news for you all, and only guys, Sorry. There was a huge, first of all, there was a huge financial upside to having this birthright. Listen, when, when dad pa passed away and they read the will, 
the firstborn son would receive three times as much as the rest of the kids. He would get two-thirds, and the rest would have to split all the leftovers. Anything he had done just by the birth order. Another thing that came along with this birthright was the authority that you were given over the rest of the family, and the whole family knew it. I mean, when, when dad passed away, now you were the man. You were in charge. You settled all family disputes. Whatever you say goes because you were the one in possession of the birthright. And there was one other thing. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, there was this belief that if you had the birthright, you above everybody else in your family had the blessing of God on your life. So this birthright had enormous privilege attached. Money, authority, and the blessing of God. It was a huge deal. So here's how the story goes. Genesis 25. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished, and he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Now Esau comes in from hunting, says, man, that smells good, little brother. I'm hungry. Give me a bowl of that stew. Now, I didn't grow up with a brother, uh, so I don't quite understand this dynamic like some of you. I mean, how, how many of you ha have an older brother or sister, younger brother and sister? You got it? Yeah. Um, I got two boys, Derek and Drew, and my boys love each other. It's so cool to see them. They're, they're like best, best buddies, and they have a great relationship, and we never had really any serious sibling rivalry going on in our house, but you could see this dynamic play out. Maybe you've witnessed it too, where the older brother or sibling doesn't need anything from the younger one. But the younger one's always wanting the older one's stuff. Anybody see that play out in their home growing up? And growing up, the little brother or the little sister is kind of like a pest, right, to, to the older ones. And mom, they've been in my room again. Mom, they wore a sweatshirt again. Mom, they took my jeans. Did they borrow my car without asking? They are such a pest. Why don't we just sell them, right? Have you ever thought that? The little brother and the little sister is always wanting stuff from the, from the older, but rarely, rarely, rarely does the older one need anything from the younger. But when he does, when he does, the smart little brother hits the pause button and says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You? You need something from me? You never need anything from me, but since you do, I have the power, and it's going to cost you. If you want this from me, I'm going to need that from you. And they start negotiating, right? Let me drive your car. No, let me wear your jacket. No, let me have your PlayStation. No, give me your iPhone 14. No, and you go down the list until the older brother finally caves in. You've seen that dynamic probably play out in your own house. So little brother Jacob, knowing the impulsive nature of his big brother Esau and fully aware of the power of appetites, seizes the moment and says, okay, you want some stew? Here's the deal. This steaming delicious red bowl of stew can all be yours if the price is right. And he offers the most ridiculous trade in all of history. Jacob says, okay, first... Uh, Sell me or trade me your, your, your birthright. What? Not can I drive your car. Not can we change bedrooms for a month. Not can I have your laptop. I'm, I'm going to need your birthright. Okay, so who in the world 
would give up everything they had simply because they were hungry in the moment. Who in the world would trade their entire future for something as temporary as a lousy bowl of stew? Who would throw away their marriage? Who would throw away their children and their respect? Who would throw away their reputation? Who would throw away their scholarship? Who in the world would throw away their career? Who would throw away their influence, their ministry? Who would throw away their legacy for something as stupid as a bowl of stew? You would. If it's the right bowl of stew, I would. If it's the right bowl of stew, because I'm telling you guys, unrestrained appetites are powerful and they're always screaming more and they always scream you got to have it right now never later and I'm telling you just following your heart will lead you away from making a wise decision every single time and listen none of us are exempt from standing in a very same situation as Esau where we're tempted to make the same kind of stupid trade For something that will take everything that we have. Look at Esau's response. This this, this is unbelievable to me. But look look how Esau responds. He goes, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? You talk about living in the impulse of the moment. He gets all dramatic. You guys ever do this? He goes, look, I'm about to die, man. I'm about to die. We read that and think, dude, look, come on. You walked in the kitchen. You got shoulders the size of bowling balls. You're not about to die. Come on, your stomach might be growling. Your blood sugar may have taken a hit, but you're, you're not about to die. Come on, man. You're exaggerating. He goes, no, no, no. Look, I'm, I'm about to die. What good? See where he's going with it? What good is the birthright to me? I mean, what good is the birthright to me if I die right now? We go, well, Hang on, dude. For starters, you get three times as much money as your brother, and you get control over the whole family, plus you get the blessing of God. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know all that stuff. I'm talking about right now. I mean, if I drop dead from hunger right now, what good is the birthright to me? This is ridiculous, right? But it happens to all of us. In fact, researchers have studied and written about how when something shows up that our appetites crave, when it shows up right in front of us, something chemically changes in our brain. It makes that already strong desire even stronger, almost like the same chemical reaction that happens to somebody who's addicted to cocaine. In those moments, your brain blows something way out of proportion and makes it appear so much bigger, so much better, so much more attractive than it actually is. This applies to both positive and negative things, where you go, oh man, this, this, this roller coaster is going to be so horrible. Or this date, man, is going to be the greatest date of all time, you know? It's what psychologists call impact bias. It magnifies the desire to the point where it makes the things that we crave seem like the end-all answer for what's missing in our life. And this chemical gets released in the brain that makes that thing almost irresistible, and then our self starts to lie to us. Oh, man, if you could only get this. 
if you could only have that, if you could only hook up with him, hook up with her. This is it, man. I know you can't afford it right now. I know it might hurt some other people, but this, this right here is the more. This is the more you've been craving. Come on, man, just follow your heart. It'll take your life from the negative two that it currently is to like a nine or, or, or a 10. You, you have to have this. And that's what happens to Esau. In the moment, all he could see, all he could smell, all he could think about, all he could taste, all he could crave was what his heart, what his appetite was telling him he had to have in the moment. So Jacob says to him, okay, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Esau trades his birthright for a bowl of red stew. Again, worst trade of all time. In fact, there's a little comment in verse 30 that says this. That's why Esau was called red. How embarrassing is that? Because he traded his birthright for a bowl of red stew, people started calling him red. He'd show them, hey, what's up, Red? They all started laughing. How would you like to have a nickname that reminded you of your stupid decision for the rest of your life? I heard a, a friend, Andy Stanley, talk about how it would have been so helpful if somebody could have showed up in the moment, kind of one of those back to the future moments where someone could have popped into that scene and told Esau what the future held for him. Someone could have showed up and go, Esau, you remember... You might remember how, how you heard your dad, Isaac, talk about how his dad, your granddad, a guy named Abraham, had been given this promise from God that he was going to make him and his family into a great nation. You remember that? And from this nation is going to come this huge blessing for the whole world. No, listen, Esau, you need to know you're going to have 12 sons, and they're going to have a whole bunch of kids. And eventually you're going to become that nation, and that nation is going to be taken into slavery in Egypt. They're going to be enslaved for a long time. And then they're going to cry out to God. And God is going to hear their cries. And God is going to raise up this deliverer, a guy named Moses. Now hang with me here, Esau, because I know you're hungry, dude. But when God shows up and introduces himself to Moses, he says to Moses, I am the great I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And listen to me, man. If you take that stew, all that changes. You think you want what your little brother has now? Dude, you take that stew, and God will introduce himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your little brother. And then hang with me, Esau, 2,000 years later, the Messiah, the one that God promised your great-grandfather Abraham would, would come into the world to bless the entire world. His name is, is Jesus. They're going to call him Jesus, which means he will save his people. And the most amazing thing is going to happen as he delivers all the people for all time for the whole world from their sins. And while he's on earth, he's going to gather some people around him. One of those guys is a guy named Matthew. And he's going to write down the story of Jesus. And it's going to be contained within this best-selling book someday called the Bible. And the way this book is going to start is this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Esau. And look, man, I know your stomach is growling, but let me ask you, you want to give all that up? 
You want to throw away your future? You want to throw away your legacy? For a lousy bowl of stew? But there was nobody there in the moment to remind him that God wanted to do something significant through his life. There was no one there saying, come on, man, don't do this. This is an incredibly bad trade. Appetites are strong, and you eat this stew, and guess what? You're only going to want more. Come on, Esau, don't follow your heart. Don't listen to your appetite screaming right now. Think about later. Think about your family. Think about your future. Think about your legacy. Listen, dude, this will not satisfy your life. And look how it ends. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank. And they were gone. They got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Here's the deal. This tension will never go away. You guys are going to have to do battle with your appetites for the rest of your life. I, I see this all the time with young guys, especially in pornography. Again, that chemical gets released in the brain. And that desire becomes almost insatiable. And everything else blurs and distorted thinking takes over. And they find themselves trading in the light of a real authentic relationship for the darkness of some temporary fantasy or fixed gratification. And they stop seeing people as somebody of great worth who are made in the image of God. And they trade that in for a flickering image on some computer screen. And millions of guys and an increasing number of gals are trading love and freedom and sanity for a lousy bowl of stew. Here's, here's what I've, I'm learning. The only hope is to reframe those appetites of what, what God wants to do with your life. To right now in your life, to see the big picture, to know what you want your life to be, what you want your life to look like, what you want your legacy to be. Uh, I was, man, 25 when I sat down and drew that picture. I had uh, two little kids at the time, third one on the way, and I uh, thought, you know, man, what do, I want, what do I want my life to look like? Somebody encouraged me to sit down and write a mission statement and then draw that picture of what I wanted my life to look like. And uh, I was 25 years old. That was, what, 93 years ago. Um, feels like it. My knees feel like that. Um, but I sat down, and my, my life mission statement I, I came up with, I, I just wrote it down simply, I just, I just want to look, love, and live like Jesus. That's what I wrote down. Now, I've got a long way to go, but I'm telling you what, that's a great thing to pursue in your life. Just look, love, and live like Jesus. Then I wrote down paragraphs about what I wanted my life to look like. I wrote down a paragraph about being a great husband. I wrote down what, what, what I thought that looked like. I wrote down a paragraph what I, what I felt like it looked like to be a great dad. I wrote down a paragraph what I felt like it looked to be a good friend, uh, what it looked like to be a good leader, uh, what it looked like to, to, uh, to be physically fit. I mean, I wrote down I wrote like six or seven different paragraphs, and I, and I kind of like it drew a picture of me, of my life, of what I wanted my life to be like, how, how it would honor God. And, and I kind of took that picture, but get in those moments in, in my life, and I had a bunch of those moments where I'd be at a crossroad of which direction am I going to go? Am I going to follow my heart? I'm going to chase my appetites. I go, you know what? If I chase those appetites, it's going to screw up that picture. 
And I don't want to screw up that picture. I had to reframe those appetites and say, no, that's what I want my life to look like. And I'm not going to let those desires, those cravings take me away and wreck that picture, wreck my family. To know what you want your life to look like. To right now, write down your legacy way ahead of time. It's like hanging a picture on your heart. And you can look at that picture all through your life. So when your appetites start screaming, come on, more and now, more and now, more and now, you can say, you know what? I'm not willing to screw up that picture. I'm not willing to let you control my life. You are not going to make decisions for me. I'm sticking with God's plan. I know what I want my life to look like. And if I go with you, it's going to mess all that up. I am not going to cave in the instant gratification. I got one life coach. And he's the Holy Spirit that's in me. Do you guys see why it's so important to surrender to the loving leadership and authority of God? To let his wisdom lead your life instead of just following your heart? Because I'm telling you, in those moments, when our appetites are screaming at us, we need strength from beyond ourselves. We need some power from beyond ourselves to shut those appetites up. We need somebody that's bigger and better and stronger and wiser to guide us a different direction. That, that's why a guy named Paul that wrote a lot of the New Testament of the Bible wrote this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Such, such a different philosophy than follow your heart, right? I, I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Then you won't be jerked around by your appetites. When you invite him to come into your life in that moment, in the moment, he will remind you, come on, play the YouTube video all the way out. See how this ends. He will prompt you in the moment, draw promises to show you a way of escape. He will prompt you to lean into a good friend for help and counsel, to call somebody, text somebody, to surround yourself with people that can speak truth into your life and help you with all the distorted thinking that's going on in your mind. He will bring up truth from Scripture that maybe you heard at a synergy and on a retreat or maybe you're sitting around in a small group and you were doing a little Bible study. He will bring those Scriptures up inside your mind in those moments, telling you that that that. You need to go this direction. He will help you in those moments reframe those appetites so they won't lead you away from becoming God's best version of you, so they don't lead you away from leaving the kind of legacy that you want to leave with your life. So, so I know you got a ton of schoolwork to do, but can I give you an assignment this week? Uh, just write down at, at the top of a page. You can do it on a laptop, or you can just sit down old school with a pen and write down... This is what I did when I was 25 years old. 10 years from now. 10 years from now, what do I want, what do I want my life to look like? What kind of person am I going to be? What, what, what do I want my life to look like? Take some time to do this. What, what do I want my life to look like? And ask God to help you as, you as you write this stuff down and just say, what kind of person do I want to be known as 10 years from now? What would I want to see God do in my relationships 10 years from now? What would I want... See God do maybe in my marriage 10 years from now, in my kids 10 years from now. What, what do you want to see God do in your neighborhood, your community, your school, your, your, maybe your students that you'll end up teaching, the team that you might be leading or coaching? What do you want to see God do in your career, in your business, with your employees, with, with their families? How could you see God using you in the future in ministry in some way, serving other people? Just start writing it down. 10 years from now, this, 
This is what I want my life to look like. And in doing that, you are reframing those appetites in such a way that you are leaning into God for the deep satisfaction only he can become healthy desires, God-honoring desires that can support the picture that you drew. You've got to ask God to help you to find what a great life, what a better story looks like, and then hang that picture on the wall of your heart way ahead of time. And then daily you surrender to the leadership of God's spirit and you ask him to help you restrain your appetites because if you don't reframe and restrain, you're going to find yourself in the same spot as Esau. And I'm just telling you, you will trade your future for a bowl of stew. I'm walking into a church this weekend. I'm still saying this to you. Maybe you think of praying for me. I'm walking into a church this weekend where that happened. Some guy traded in everything for a bowl of stew, and it's wrecking people's lives. And I'm going to try to walk in, give some encouragement, some comfort this weekend. But that's what it boils down to. So can I just pry and ask you, because I love you guys, what's your bowl of stew right now? What is that thing right now that's being held out to you that honestly you are finding it so hard to resist? What is it right now that you're having a hard time saying no to? Let me put it this way. What are you trying to talk yourself into? What kind of rationalizations are you coming up with? So that you can make a feeble attempt to explain the reason why you're going to make this bad decision. What is it that you, you know, you know right now is a really bad decision, but you're about to make it anyway. Whatever it is, it's your bowl of stew and it looks good and it smells great and it promises something it can never deliver. And I don't know what it is for you right now, but I do know this. What, what was true of Esau is true of you. You have no idea what God wants to accomplish through your life. You have no idea that God wants to accomplish through your kids and through their kids. You have no idea how God wants to use you right here in this school while you're here, right in your friend circle, in this community, on your job, in your ministry. But I'm telling you, God knows. And that's why he's saying to all of us tonight, listen. The heart is deceitful above all things. Follow me, not your heart. Let me lead your life. Let me help you lead a better story. Because there's so much I want to do in and through your life. So whatever, whatever you do, don't trade that for some lousy bowl of stew. Let's, uh, let's pray for a little while. You know, if you, if you want to talk to somebody about anything going on, maybe you... Have some strong stuff pulling at you. Whatever. You want to pray with someone about anything today, there are going to be folks outside in between the house and the, and the hut afterwards. You can just go out there and say, hey, I need to pray with somebody. Love to chat with you and pray with you. And then we're going to, we're going to worship for a while here. But let me, let me leave some prayer. Father, I, I, I just want to thank you for putting stories like this in, in your book and God, I, I, know, I, I know the whole you know, Middle Eastern culture birthright thing doesn't quite connect with us, but 
we get the rest of it because there is stuff out there screaming at us, come on, do it now, take this now. This will make your life great. Come on, follow your heart. You do you, man. And God, I, I, you know I lived that way way too long, and I'm so grateful that somebody said some of this stuff to me years ago and said, come on, man, don't go down that road. Let the Holy Spirit lead your life. Then you won't be jerked around by your appetites. God, I pray for every student here tonight. Thursday night, God, I just saw something about them. But even that, God, I know there are struggles that go on in their minds. I I know there are are battles that they fight with temptation. And I know there's all kinds of things being thrown at them. And God, I just just pray that maybe you would give them the, the courage and the humility to sit down and just go, what I want my life to look like. God, help me. Paint me a picture so I can hang that on my heart. So when I'm at that crossroad and my appetites are screaming, come on, do this, I can go, no, I'm not going to screw that picture up. I want to leave a legacy a God-honoring legacy with my life. So, Father, thank you so much for for teaching us this stuff, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will remind us every day, all through the day, of what we talked about here today. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, let's stand up together, and we're going to worship.